Hello, and welcome to the Women Who Code podcast. This show features conversations between diverse technology professionals discussing women in the industry, cutting-edge innovations, the future of work, deeply technical topics, and the ways that we can all work together to make the world a more inclusive place. We hope you enjoy, and if you do, please subscribe, rate, and comment. This week on Women Who Code Conversations, we talk with Tish Looper, the Vice President of Customer Success at Tigergraph. She discusses the details of her day-to-day work with customers, some of the highlights on her career journey, and her thoughts on the tech industry. Enjoy. Hello, everybody. Welcome. Uh, I am Sneha. I am a data scientist at GrabHub in one of the research and experimentation teams. I'm also a lead for our Women Who Code Data Science track. And today I'm here with Tish Looper, who is the VP of Customer Success, having over a 20-year career in the technology industry. And she has developed expertise in several technical domains with complex data from data intelligence, forensic investigations, analysis, governance, risk and compliance, and cyber incident response. Complementary to her vast technical knowledge, she brings extensive experience working directly with customers in various roles like sales engineering, technical training, professional services. Um, Tish is taking her years of experience, her passion for technology, along with her leadership skills at Tigergraph to lead a global customer success group enabling both customers and partners to achieve their goals in their graph journey. And with that, I would love to welcome Tish for a conversation with us. Hey, Tish. Hey, Sneha. Thank you so much for having me today. I'm thrilled to be here and be able to speak with you. Absolutely. I'm so excited. Uh, Looking forward to this conversation. I think I would love to get started on learning a little bit of your background, a little bit about your early career journey and how you got into tech or what motivated you to get into tech. Yeah, and you know, I did not start out my career in tech, but early within it, I had an opportunity to really learn and become certified in network administration and database administration as well. And, you know, with this, you know, I learned these great new skills and it opened up my eyes to what what really truly is possible with technology. And that really fueled my passion. And with that, I really started to see unlimited potential for me to advance in my career. So from there, I had a lot of great opportunities to work within software companies. And like you said, within various roles, you know, around data, you know, so I really had you know, a great career and still have a great career uh, in front of me, uh, you know, that is around data and has now moved into a leadership role. Awesome. That's fantastic. It's really great to hear how you sort of have been, had an open mind and you kind of navigated your way into the tech industry. That's really great. Thank okay. you. So I, I know that you work uh, within customer success and relations, right? I 
I'm hoping to kind of hear a little bit more about that from you. Uh, what would you say interested you in the specific path and taking up customer success as your, as your career path? I always feel that I've always been in customer success, no matter what role I've had. These roles really have allowed me to build relationships with customers and understand their goals and objectives. As I mentioned, you know, I've really focused on data management technologies, which I truly love data and the insights that we can gather from it, especially how technology really helps drive clarity to solve business and technical challenges. You know, from that passion, I enjoyed working closely with customers to solve their problems, making sure that they're having a good experience and getting the results that they needed. When I was asked, um, the very first time to build out a customer, you know, success team, it was like all of a sudden I found the perfect job that matched my skills and my passion. Mm -hmm. It was the career path that I didn't even know that I wanted or that I even expected to have. Awesome. I think, I, I think it is so important to have those great relationships and have a focus on customer success. I think it's really important and it's great that you are uh, focusing on this, this space uh, here at Tiger Graph. All right, so, so kind of uh, leading into that a little bit more uh, into what you do at Tiger Graph currently. Uh, here you are the VP of customer success. So can you tell us a little bit about what the role looks like? What is uh, a little bit more about the awesome work that you guys are doing? <laughs> so when I look at my role here at Tiger Graph, I'm focused on customers and making sure that we're always nurturing a positive experience. At Tiger Graph, I've had the opportunity to build a diverse team, the customer success group. And I, I've gotten the opportunity to build it from the ground up. And we at TigerGraph have aligned the pre-sales engineering, learning and development, solution consultants, as well as, you know, that's kind of solution consultants kind of goes into our professional services. And as well as our customer success managers under my purview. This allows me to look at our people, our processes, our customers' goals, and focus on delivering a consistent frictionless personal journey, you know, for both potential and existing customers as they adopt graph technology across verticals and horizontal use cases. Mm -hmm. You know, when I look at though, from a day-to-day, -day, what does my job look like? Daily, it's really about managing the customer-centric experience, measuring metrics of the teams, and concentrating on our strategic vision aligned with the Tiger Graph goals. And you know, when we talk about the Tiger Graph goals, it's really about you know what are our goals for the future within our customer base? How do we drive mm -hmm. their success? Awesome. So sounds like you've you know stood up a lot of this work that your team is uh, taking on. Uh, that's, that's really great to hear. That moves us forward into my next question. Um, I wanted to know what are your pointers for growing in your work? Yeah, growing in your work, you know, we all want to be able to, you know, be liked. You know, we always wanna feel that it's important to be liked, but more important than that is to be able to have the self-awareness on ourselves, as well as work on sharpening our skills. We have to look at 
taking that self-awareness combined with sharpening our skills and being open to those new opportunities when they're presented to you. And right now at Tiger Graph, you know, we've got so many great career opportunities to help individuals help grow in technology careers. As well as, you know, we even have, you know, our million dollar challenge, which you can check out more details probably about our career growth and our million dollar challenge on our website. But as we look at being open, we must recognize that not everyone's path is the same and that the career that you anticipated for yourself might be a little bit different than you anticipated. Awesome. I, I really like your advice here. I, I particularly like the self-awareness piece being open and how you pointed out that, you know, uh, what you expected is what could actually be something different in, in your actual career path. So that's some great advice there. Thank you. Uh, I know that one of the things you're really passionate about, Tish, is diversity. Uh, and you kind of put a lot of emphasis around building a diverse team. Um, so I wanted to learn a little bit more about how do you hire for, uh, for a diverse team? What are the things that you look for? or what is kind of your perspective when you go into these hiring decisions? Yeah, diversity is something that I'm extremely very passionate about. And I really think as a leader, diversity starts there, you know, and it has to then go downward. Mm -hmm. And just not only does diversity start with, with me as a leader and how I'm building out my team, but it also has to be really truly a part of the company's culture, the DNA of a company. So as I'm looking at currently, you know, scaling out multiple teams, because like I said, I have four teams underneath my purview mm -hmm. and, you, and we're hiring and growing out these teams. And when you're going through this, you have to make sure that you have a diverse interview panel. And as you look at having the diverse interview panels for the teams, it's sometimes also about rethinking. And in some cases, it's even about reanalyzing the requirements you list as mandatory on the job descriptions. Mm -hmm. Because this then gives you the ability to look at a larger, maybe eligible pool of candidates from diverse backgrounds. And one other area that I really focus on as I build out my team is about team orientation. I look for diverse individuals that complement one another. And when we look at how we work together, it's really important to look at how, how are we aligning those complements to our team's vision, mission, and our goals. And that together builds just not success for the employees, but if I have successful employees, I will then have great customer success. Fantastic. I think I'm, I'm sure it's a lot of work and there's a fair amount of uh, paradigm shift in terms of just how people think about or uh, look at hiring, right? And you uh, made a very good point about how you might also have to reanalyze, reassess the mandatory requirements being listed. Uh, but it's fantastic that you're kind of spearheading this at Tiger Graph and you're uh, taking up your passion around diversity and really putting it into practice for your team. That's awesome. I think, um, Tish, another thing that outside of diversity you're super passionate about is mentorship. Uh, and yeah. I would love to get your thoughts around how to find a good mentor and how to be a great mentor. 
Yeah. And mentoring can be very challenging. I know as I started out, you know, in my career, it happened something that was more natural for me. Um, I did not have a mentor in my career. It was more or less the interactions with individuals throughout my career. Although one of my biggest mentors, as I started out in my career was my husband. Mm -hmm. Um, He's been such an encouragement to me. And, you know, he's really guided me to continue on, on days that I wanted to give up as well as he's really helped me to be able to look at different perspectives and, and kind of as where I'm looking at these different perspectives, it made me think differently. Um, so that was really great to be able to have that kind of support. And currently today at Tiger Graph, I'm blessed that Tiger Graph has helped me with an executive coach and a mentor. And that has really, truly been a rewarding experience for myself. Mm-hmm. And I can see where it's made me rethink what my goals and my expectations are. And it, it's also, as I'm very passionate about mentoring and, and, you know, about stepping in, it's about stepping out mm-hmm. and, you know, meeting people where we need to be able to meet people. And I think we need to make mentor programs more accessible for women, because I don't think today that enough women are stepping up and asking for mentorships or mm-hmm. participating in a program. Yeah, yeah, that's that's all sounds very relatable to me because uh, I don't have a mentor and I always wonder uh, what's the best way to kind of go up to somebody and say, okay, can you be my mentor? I don't know. <laughs> it's it's hard. It's, it's hard. Yeah. It is hard and we have to make, you know, programs kind of, you know, like apps, you know, mm-hmm. <laughs> that can help align people create, you know, we Absolutely. have, we have apps for other things that make other connections and relationships. And, yes. you know, obviously we're both in graph and it's about those relationships and connecting them mm-hmm. and driving out the value. And I think we need to be able to do that within mentor programs. Yeah. I think that would be fantastic. <laughs> <laughs> We need to connect on that. (laughs) I am happy to. (laughs) That's great. All right. Okay. I think, uh, so you grew into this VP role here at Tiger Graph. Um, I wanted to get your perspective around how you find uh, success in a leadership role and what advice do you have for people who want to kind of move upwards in their career. Yeah, well, and as we were just talking about having those connected relationships, Mm -hmm. the first part is investing in relationships. Mm -hmm. And and that really has to start with listening and and listening to individuals because we can learn so much from individuals. But I also feel part of my success is that I, I enjoy responsibility. So, you know, however, it is important though, to make sure that you're level setting your expectations with individuals. So as you take on those responsibilities, we have to make sure that we're getting clarity and and agreements. And when we put together, you know, those responsibilities, those relationships, clarity and agreement, it provides us a direction on how we can go ahead and execute. And I think doing all of that for me has really, you know, allowed me to stay true to my vision and my mission. And Mm -hmm. that has all really helped me, 
you know, build out this customer success group. And, you know, as I started building out this customer success group here for Techograph, I came in with one other different title as head mm -hmm. of customer success. But now in nine months, you know, what I've built out and what I've been able to establish, I've been able to get a promotion into now the VP of customer success here at Tegagraph. So when we look at success, it's really about, you know, coming together, you know, and it, to me, it's part of, it's combined with all those other questions that you've, you've asked me already about diversity and talking about the team orientation. It's, it's having all of that and really being able to stay focused on the things that you need to be able to deliver and execute on. Wow, oh, awesome. Uh, nine months is a short time, so it's commendable. It's great that uh, you were able to move from head of customer success to VP level. That's, that's fantastic. Yeah, it, you know, and it was really great, though, to be able to be with a company that sees your value. Yeah, absolutely. Yep. It, it's kind of a two-way road. <laughs> it really is. So, I mean, just not only do you have the responsibility to deliver and to execute, you know, mm -hmm. and say what, you know, do what you say, but it's also being able to build the right relationships within your company and being able to have that contribution and to be recognized. Absolutely. That's, that's fantastic. All right. So I think you've grown through various roles in your career, right? Uh, and in this industry, we see new things coming up every other day. It's a very rapidly changing space. Um, what do you think is a good way to stay relevant and to continue to excel? Yeah, and as I've grown through my career, I've gone from now, you know, an individual contributor role Mm -hmm. to a leadership role. And I always felt, you know, I said, you know, being hands-on as an individual contributor always made me feel very relevant. Um, but right now, as I look at, you know, how do I stay relevant today in a leadership role? And it's, it's remaining true to yourself and it's finding time to stay connected to industry, doing, you know, researching industry, looking at the trends, reading the content that's out there, reading, reading, you know, business books, although occasionally mm -hmm. I do squeak in a, a novel. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but you know, it's keeping connected with these communities. And I feel it's so important, though, to also stay in touch with individuals throughout, you know, other, you know, cross departments mm -hmm. within my company, you know, and being able to have these conversations at all different levels and hear what they're doing. Mm -hmm their individual successes, their stories help connect me to stay mm -hmm. relevant, as well as really motivates me to excel. Got it. That's solid advice. I think there are a lot of folks out there um, who are, you know, sort of at a, at a point in their career where they want to maybe move forward into more of a managerial or a leadership role, but they might have kind of, you know, uh, reservations around it in terms of how do I still stay relevant? Because like you mentioned, they may not still be hands-on with the technology aspect of it. So I think this is really solid advice for all those folks out there. Um, I think we've, we've really probed 
around a lot into uh, your advice around career and what the work you do and all of that. I would like to take a step back and get to know a little more about uh, what are you passionate about outside of work? Yeah, well, outside of work, my biggest passion really truly is my family. I, I really have enjoyed being a wife and, mm -hmm. and a mother of two boys. And I really am though thankful though of how they've supported me in my career. Um, but some of my favorite things that we do as a family is we'll take some hikes together, uh, mm -hmm. go biking, fishing, even with the boys. Um, that's been, been a great time. Yeah. And, um, you know, I have boys that are very athletic and very into sports, but as a family, we're a very big baseball family. So mm -hmm. there's a lot of passion around baseball in our house. And, but as we're doing all these activities, my personal thing that I love to do is bring my camera on these adventures and take pictures of and capture these memories just not of the, the scenery or the baseball games, you know, but, you know, also my husband and, and my two boys. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, sometime in the future, I'm really hoping that I get to have, have a little bit more time just to focus on my photography and, and really drive more of that passion. Yeah, I really hope that uh, you, can, you can get to that, but it's wonderful how you are uh, balancing all the amazing work that you're doing with the family stuff and kind of, you know, making sure you're not losing touch of your photography. Uh, it's, it's wonderful how you're balancing it all. <laughs> Thanks. But, you know, I think it's not easy. <laughs> it's not easy, but, you know, there's, there's days that, you know, one thing has to give up over the other. Yeah, I'm sure. Yeah. yeah. Okay. It was so wonderful chatting with you, Tish. And now that we are at the end of this conversation, uh, we would love to get a pro tip from you for our community and our listeners. Great. Well, thank you so much. I really appreciated chatting with you too today. And I, I really hope we get to continue on with this conversation. Um, yeah. But as, as we wrap up, my, my pro tip is remember that nothing is forever. Stay open. And remember to take time to breathe. And I think also as, as part of my pro tip, one of the things that I really want to kind of close on is that the career path that you might be on may be different than where you end up. I truly could never have envisioned where I am now. Mm -hmm. And the job that you might have in the future might not even be invented yet. So we have to stay open to, to new so opportunities. True. Yeah, that is so true. Thank you for that awesome pro tip. <laughs> Thank it was you. great having you with us. Thank you, Tish. Oh, my pleasure. It was great speaking with you today. In celebration of Geologist Day on April 3rd, this week's Women Who Code Career Nav segment is featuring Natasha Hendrick, Development Geoscience Manager and Principal Geophysicist at Santos Limited. She'll be discussing her career journey and the path she took to geophysics, as well as details about her work and profession. Enjoy! Thanks very much for coming along to learn a little bit more about navigating your career in STEM in this crazy, confusing and constantly changing world that we're finding ourselves in at the moment. 
Um, you heard a little bit about my career and I guess it's fair to say that it's anything but conventional for a scientist. I've almost had um, parallel careers, one in geophysics, I'm a geophysicist by degree, uh, but my second career has been around uh, outdoor education, leadership facilitation, strategy and planning, and um, leading organisations through um, board roles. I'm only just discovering that it's a good thing to have had such a unusual career. You know, over the last couple of years, as part of my leadership work, I've been doing a lot of research into the future of work and career navigation. And with all of the change going on in the world, um, we know that change is impacting many things, many, many things, many aspects of life. And that includes how we should be approaching our career. So I'm hoping today I can give you some ideas to help you better navigate your careers um, as, you, as you move forward. So I'm going to start by setting the context for the world we're living in. Of course, we're all absorbed with the possibly the COVID um, pandemic at the moment, but actually it's part of a much bigger cycle of change that's happening in the world. So welcome to the fourth industrial revolution. I'll introduce you to the leadership mindsets that really matter and explain how these days we need to step off the career ladder and swing on to a jungle gym. I've got some takeaway exercises, um, one around anchoring your values and another around communication. So have a notebook or device handy to jot down some notes as we go through. And um, we'll take a look at the skills that have priority in today's world, talk about being an impact player in your workplace and reflect on the importance of finding your support network to help navigate your career. Now, I'm happy to answer any questions. Please just drop them into the chat um, or we'll have time to chat at the end of the presentation. So I guess it's no surprise to all of you that the rate of significant change is accelerating. If you were born at the time of the steam engine, you actually had two or three generations to absorb the impact of that change. So it was a big change to the world at the time, but it, it occurred over a long period of time. There was time to absorb it and respond to it. Not too long ago even, a person could reliably begin and end a career with a single company, uh, perhaps even performing the same job throughout their entire life. And your grandparents may have been in that position. But today, today we have to adapt to three or four or five paradigm shifts in a single generation. And this is driven both by the velocity of change and by our extended human lifespan. And it's what makes today a living in today so different um, than compared to the past when significant change occurred, but it was it was slower. It, today, we've got this just a massive number of paradigm shifts to absorb and respond to. So it's clear that the ability to adapt, learn and change how we work and live is absolutely essential to survive and thrive um, in today's world. So Electricity and mass production saw the introduction of the second industrial revolution. And at that time, there was a requirement then for workers to start to become more specifically educated for the industry they were working in. But typically they spent their whole career in an, in an industry that usually the whole family was involved with. So their identity was largely focused around a particular industry and they spent their lifetime, even their childhood, becoming familiar with that industry. And back then, success was measured by efficiency and optimization of processes. But for the majority of us working today, we have come from a world 
that was designed and organized for the third industrial revolution. And that was the coming of the age of computers. And that revolution saw a huge shift of physical laborers to knowledge workers, and it drove the need for deeper specialization. So in this age, we were coached to pick a solid relevant major to study at university that would find us a job when we graduated. And in this era, the measure of our intelligence has been based on the amount of stored knowledge we have. Our personal identity has largely hung off what we do and our success in life has been interwoven with how high up the career ladder we progress. Actually, we're in the fourth industrial revolution now. So even though our mental models are still back in the third industrial revolution, we have well and truly entered the fourth industrial revolution and we're having to adapt constantly to significant paradigm shifts. So where we once learn for a specific job and then use that knowledge and experience to build a career over decades, now we have to work to continuously learn in order to embrace the constantly changing opportunities. So that means more often than not, we have to become neo-generalists. They're professionals that can apply their ability to learn and adapt to any number of roles that we find ourselves in. Um, this is counterintuitive when you feel threatened by change. I know most of the technical people um, that I work with, they tend to prioritise becoming ever more specialist and holding on to ever more knowledge when they feel under threat. But in fact, this is not the right approach. In this new world, we also need to move away from the idea of a traditional linear career path. Um, things are just changing too fast for that simplistic approach. Um, we can no longer easily articulate who we are simply by replying to the question, what do you do? And instead our identity is about why we do what we do. So we're gonna explore those concepts in more detail throughout this presentation. But before moving on, I just wanna reassure you that there is still plenty of work for humans to do. Our careers will be long and prosperous. They just won't necessarily look like what we used to because technology is gonna take over many of our routine tasks and remove the need for us to be holders of expansive libraries of knowledge. So what remains then for us mere mortals to do? Well, it's the exploration. It's that part of business where you identify a problem and experiment with possible solutions. It's that translation of an original idea to a workable solution. There is no machine learning that can be built to explore. That's a unique value proposition of humans. And so our real value lies in learning, adapting, creating. We need superpowers in agile thinking. We need to be able to engage with others, communicate our, our ideas and influence decisions to make an impact. Human experiences and human connections will be the key to making ourselves robot proof. And in order to thrive through the fourth industrial revolution, we need to shift our understanding of our identity and the value we bring to the workplace. And we need to change how we navigate our careers. So having set the scene, it's probably quite apparent what mindsets matter most for moving forward. And here are the four mindsets that will help you lead yourself through a world of constant change. The authentically me mindset recognizes the importance of understanding your own purpose and values and how you manifest them in your work. We are simply not able to manage constant significant change if our identity and sense of self feels threatened. 
The radically forward mindset helps us to embrace the necessary continuous learning that comes with constant change. It also helps us to find the courage to let go of the things that hold us back from adapting. The deeply human mindset focuses us on diversity, equity and inclusion and ensures that we work with a people first approach. So we're going to prioritise engagement with others and communication. And the courageously impactful mindset raises our awareness that every one of our actions has an impact on others. It helps ensure that we are able to connect the dots, build networks and mobilise resources to leverage the change that surrounds us in order to create positive impact for ourselves, our teams, our companies and society at large. So consciously practising these four mindsets on a daily basis will help build your resilience and support you to progress through your career. Now, um, as I've already flagged, one of the big shifts brought about by the massive and rapid change that we're li living through relates to our careers. In the old information era, our life path was mapped out as a series of sequential steps. We move through a period of education, we uh, progress through our career and then we retired. And in days gone by, we might have expected to climb a career ladder over a 30 or 40 year period, right up until the time that we retired. But our new reality looks more like a jungle gym. So we need to swap out the idea of education over a fixed period and bring in this idea of continuous learning. We, we need a continuous state of discovery and reinvention throughout our careers. And we need to recognise that we will engage in a variety of work that meets our per personal purpose and interests at any given time. So you might be working in tech now, but it's not a given that you'll be working in tech your entire career. Instead of success being measured by how high up the career ladder we make it, our success should now be measured by how clearly we're meeting our purpose and how effectively we can learn and adapt to create value in all of the work roles that we have. You are not your job. And this is a really hard thing to get our heads around. Our identity is not what we do. Our identity is who we are. So where do we start? Well, first you need to recognise that not moving up through your career in a linear, narrow fashion is not a bad thing. But second, you need to take responsibility for driving an intentional pathway around your own unique career jungle gym. And this means that you need to know yourself better, in particular, the values that drive you. So personal values are the moral compass that guide our actions and define who we are. Values help us evaluate if something is good, or bad, or right or wrong. They reflect what's important in our lives and they underpin what motivates us every day. Our values are formed early in life. So um, they're a result of our environment, culture, language, gender, our education, our family and friends. Because our values are the main driver behind our personality and actions, if we wanna find satisfaction and purpose in our career, it really does pay to explore and understand the values that matter most in terms of your work. So, um, being clear and grounded in your values will also help prevent you feeling lost when there is constant change around you. You understand who you are and you understand that who you are is not what you do. So I have a takeaway exercise here on the screen and I, I really encourage you to um, set aside some time for yourself to think about your personal values and identify two or three core values that underpin how you show up every day. 
Uh, it, it also helps to describe the behaviours that others might see from you every day that demonstrates that you're living those values. If, you, if you're having difficulty identifying your value, maybe think about the words that people in your life would use to describe you, or perhaps think about what you appreciate most in others. And chances are these descriptions are capturing the values and the related behaviours that matter most to you. So when I completed this exercise, for example, I identified the values of exploration, contribution and dependability as central to how I show up every day. Uh, I'm curious, you'll see me asking questions and challenging why something is so, and I really enjoy trying new things. Um, I'm a problem solver that wants to come up with ways to help others. Helping others is really a sort of a core way that I show up in my workplace. And I work hard to deliver what I say I will do to a high standard. So you can see that my behaviours reflect my values, exploration, contribution and dependability. And I can see when I look back through my career that these have shaped the job choices that I've made. So if you have an understanding of the values that shape how you show up each day, it's much more obvious what job opportunities you, you should swing across to and which ones you should skip when you're moving around your career jungle gym. Every new work opportunity should serve your own unique purpose and align with your own personal values. It is no coincidence that the professional roles that enable us to express our personal values and fulfill our why are those that we most enjoy and through which we're able to make the biggest impact. These are the things that we were born to do. So again, I encourage you to take this thought exercise away with you and see if you can come to a deeper understanding of your own values and professional motivation. Now, all of us online here today have spent quite some time becoming technical specialists. Uh, we've spent a lot of years studying, practicing our technical skills. So it's easy to see why we put a lot of weight on our technical skills when we're judging how good we are at our jobs and how how effective we can move through our careers also in this age of rapid digital transformation it makes sense to think that the really important new skills that we need to focus on to develop are related to computer and software skills and of course all those things are really important you can't do your work without them but actually what matters more are human skills so today the business world recognizes that we need to complement technology with our unique human capabilities. So the IBM Institute for Business Value now ranks flexibility, agility and adaptability, time management and prioritization, collaboration and working effectively with teams and effective communication as the top four skills necessary for, for professionals across every industry. And you can see that this survey was taken in 2018 prior to the pandemic. And I suspect these skills are even more important in today's workplaces. I'm part of a cohort of 100 women in STEM from around the world participating in the Homeward Bound Leadership Program. And we were asked what skills were most important for people in STEM careers. STEM is science, technology, engineering, maths and medicine. Uh, to be effective in their field. And the top five responses were communication, resilience, curiosity, adaptability, and teamwork. And you can see then that the deeply human mindset is such an essential component of leading yourself through your career. Of course, 
digital skills remain a fundamental literacy, just as reading, writing and mathematics are, but it's it's those uniquely human skills that enable us to support ourselves and others to seamlessly augment with rapidly changing technology. And of the human skills we need, communication skills are particularly important, no matter your area of technical specialty, actually no matter what your career is. You need to manage complex scenarios and dynamic processes and clear communication skills are critical for success. So make certain you can communicate effectively and not just with peers in your same field, but people from all backgrounds and professional areas. Communication is also a critical factor for shaping what career opportunities open up to us. It's often difficult for women in male dominated environments to speak up with confidence and authority. But if the sound bites that we offer around the board table, in corridor meetings, in formal work sessions, they don't build a case of authority, we're completely undermining our competence and we're limiting our career options. The challenge is that women, far more than men, use language patterns that tend to undermine our authority and downplay our capabilities. So I have another takeaway exercise for you to just think about how you engage with others in your workplace and consider whether you commonly use one or more of these well-known problematic language patterns. So do you constantly apologize? Do you start your sentences with sorry? Sorry, I won't take much time. Sorry, I just need to talk to you for a minute. Do you make your statements tentative or weak by prefacing with just? For example, just wanna add or just a quick email about. Do you undermine your expertise by starting sentences where you're contributing your considerable technical expertise with things like, look, I'm not the expert, but, or this might be a stupid question, I just want to know. And do you use self-diminishing qualifiers? Like, well, it's only my opinion. I ask you to monitor yourself for a week and see how many times you find yourself saying or writing these types of things. Or maybe one or more of these speech patterns already resonates with you. Once you recognise the pattern in your language, make it a habit to stop yourself. So you're ready to step off the career ladder and swing onto the jungle gym. You understand your personal values and what motivates you and your language is positively promoting your competence. So then how can you nudge along new opportunities so you can proactively navigate your career jungle gym? Well, unlike for generations in the past, we can't expect that promotions and new roles will appear simply because we've done the time. And there is no one size fits all career map. We each have to take responsibility for building our own career jungle gym. Now, the key to being seen as someone ready to take on a new challenge and so manifest career opportunities uh, is to be an impact player. And what does that actually mean? Well, it, it means that you need to be present, open, flexible and curious in your workplace. You need to be aware of what's going on around you. So beyond the tasks that you've been asked to focus on, and this is a really, really important one for technical experts. We have to stay looped into the bigger picture. We have to anticipate road bumps that might need our attention beyond our immediate area of focus. Think about what problem is your boss trying to solve? What problem is your company trying to solve? Find out and focus on that. Contribute, be useful. Another important one is 
the need to lean into those messy boundaries between teams and departments you know where no one no one really has responsibility to do the work but it's a piece of work that just needs to get done so that the respective teams and departments can deliver their their goals you also need to see the change and ambiguity that surrounds you as an opportunity to becoming even more useful and this is a difficult one to get your head around because Typically, when we see change coming at us in the workplace, we hunker down into our role and focus on what we have to do and just get it done, get it done. Instead, we need to look up and around us and see how we can leverage that change to create opportunity. What won't open professional doors is just simply focusing on your own work, um, but not looking for ways to help others in your team, for always waiting to be asked to do something and identifying problems but not having a go at defining solutions. When you're working as an impact player, career opportunities will appear. And in the meanwhile, practice your leadership mindsets and continue to build your human skills. No time is ever wasted if you're learning and growing. Finally, find your tribe. You don't have to navigate your career alone. Everybody belongs to multiple tribes. You're here with a tribe with Women Who Code. You're probably a member of a tribe that plays sport or exercises together. There'll be tribes in your workplace you belong to and tribes that you socialize and travel with. Humans are driven to connect. So help yourself by finding the tribe that's going to support you to become who you want to be. And can I say, don't be afraid to connect with networks that at first glance don't appear to be related to your technical work at all. You'll be surprised just how much people from all professions can help guide you as you build professional skills to thrive in the complex times that we find ourselves in. So to recap, traditional ideas for how we move through our professional lives are no longer relevant because of the rate of significant change in the world. Our careers won't look like our parents' careers. It won't even probably look like our bosses' careers. Our careers are changing so quickly. We can expect to work multiple jobs in multiple industries throughout our working life, and we have to continuously learn and adapt. We need to recognize that a simple linear career path is no longer viable. Instead, we have to embrace this idea of the career jungle gym. We need to understand that success is no longer related to how high up a single occupation career ladder that we move, but it's instead measured by how strongly we're meeting our own purpose and how importantly, how much value we're adding to the workplaces that we're in. Let your personal values drive your job choices as you navigate your career jungle gym. So it's so important to understand your own personal values. Every new work opportunity should align with your values. We derive the greatest enjoyments and make the biggest impact doing the work that we were born to do. Practice using language that promotes your true professional capabilities. Don't undersell yourself. You have an opportunity every day to promote how good you are at the work that you do. Generate new career opportunities by being an impact player in your workplace and find your tribe to help you navigate your career. In today's world, we each have the responsibility for building our own unique career jungle gym. Corporations aren't going to make careers for us. Our friends and family can't make careers for us. So I hope I've given you some useful tips to build an absolutely amazing, amazing career. I wish you all the very best. Now let's dive into Women Who Cold Talks Tech segment this week. 
where we are highlighting our cloud technical track with a talk by Dana Black, Senior Product Design and Strategy Consultant at Grayshore, who will be discussing ways to build design systems while keeping accessibility in mind. Enjoy. I'm going to talk about what is a design system? The most important thing to remember is that a design system is managed and implemented by people. It really is a system in that there are various moving parts. It consists of components, patterns, styles, and guidelines that help operationalize and optimize your efforts. And so there are a lot of different groups that can be involved um, but I'm going to speak from the perspective of designers, product owners, and developers, which I will collectively refer to as the product team. But again, um, various functions <laughs> are included, um, including uh, like marketing team, for example. Um, and all of these groups work together to ensure the integrity of the system. All right, so what tools can we use to start off with this design system thing, right? So first, if you have designers or if you're a designer yourself, you'll probably be, be very familiar with design tools such as Sketch or Figma. And so these are the tools where you actually go in and think about like, okay, well, what do these components look like? Um, as well as start to map out some of the interactions. Um, so you kind of start to think about like the look and feel of things that will go into your, um, into your system. Then uh, these are kind of optional, but I actually really like them. There are handover tools such as Zeppelin or Envision app. And what these do is um, it kind of it kind of streamlines it streamlines the process of getting a design from designers to I, I want to say developers, but it streamlines the process of getting it from designers to a lot of different parties. Um, so what you can do, so let's say if you work in agile uh, environment and you have stories, you can drop a link to a specific component to that story or you can also send a link to a stakeholder and from there you kind of begin this collaborative process of being able to you know have conversations about the thing that you have designed um and they also have these tools also have prototyping capabilities as well so you can kind of you know manipulate your designs to show them what a typical uh, flow may look like and these more so than I've seen in Sketch or Figma, they're a little bit more advanced in terms of the code snippets that they provide. Um, and so that's why that's kind of like the benefit of having like a handover tool. And then uh, something else you might want to use, or actually this is very important, is a front end component library. And what comes to mind when I say that is like a storybook. And so this is where your developers would actually work to code out the component and um, again, be able to collaborate with various parties. And so this is a little bit better than the handover tools because this is the, the actual real thing. And so you're able to work with 
uh, as a developer, you're able to work with designers and other uh, stakeholders to show them kind of like what the behavior of the component is, what it looks like. And it's just kind of like rounding off um, the whole process. And it's great for marketing. So, you know, you can like, you know, just for the whole preview aspect of it. So now I'm going to really dive into the how, the how. Again, this is super high level. I'm going to give you some resources if you want to uh, dive a little bit deeper. But, you know, step one is designing the components in the style guide. And so, you know, you want to work with the designer and designer will work with marketing team and product to come up with the look and feel you know is your brand conservative is it a little looser and fun you'll start to decide on things like that so step two in creating the design system is to think about the interaction. So this deals with determining the states for various components. So how do you want, like how should they look uh, when users interact with them? Um, so in this example for Aunt D, right? You see various buttons. So you see a default standard state, like what the button looks like. Um, as just if it's it's on a page, and then we see a hover state, right? So if the user takes their mouse and hover over it, what does that look like? As well as focus. So if you're tabbing uh, through with a keyboard, we want to make sure that we have a state for that as well, and we want to give the user a visual indication if they cannot. Um, if they cannot interact with that thing. And so that's where the disabled state comes from. So these are sort of the types of things that you wanna think about um, within your, within your um, when you're designing, basically, um, is to just kind of like highlight those things so that it makes it easier for number one, the developer to know how things should look as they're coding it. But the most important thing is giving the user some sort of visual indicator. And I will talk about that a little bit more when we uh, dive into the accessibility portion. So step three is more on the developer side and that is developing and storing components. So this is where, you know, you have talked to the developer as a designer or, you know, you're a developer yourself. And so you are building out these components that you've chosen, thinking about how they look, thinking about the interactions and you are housing those things within a library. And again, this is a very collaborative process. So you may want to build it and bring in product. You may want to get some feedback from marketing and um, just kind of, you know, teamwork <laughs> makes the dream work. Um, and, you know, kind of uh, finalize uh, what those components uh, look in feel like. Now I'm going to tie all of this together. So just as a recap, number one, you're gonna design components in the style guide and the tools that you can use would be like Figma, Sketch, or you know, I've seen Adobe XD as a popular one, determine the interactions. 
uh, with, you can use those design, those same design tools. They have the capability as well, as well as using like Zeppelin or Envision app, as I mentioned earlier. And then you want to develop and store and, you know, storing, um, you could use something like Storybook. And so, um, I would recommend if you really want to go deep into this, um, I recommend that you research Brad Frost, who developed Atomic Design. That is a very well-known and widely used design system, and he pretty much talks about everything. So even if you are within an organization or on a team and you want some place to start in terms of like starting the conversations about implementing a design system or you know you want to know a little bit more about what it means to maintain one then i would highly recommend uh, some of his content so the benefits of a design system uh, the first one i would say is consistency across products because this is collaborative and ideally it's something that you are maintaining across an enterprise or across multiple teams, uh, there will be a shared understanding and how components are used. Um, and in that way, you can say, for example, like we have this button and we know that we use this button for this specific thing and collectively you all know how this how to use this button and um it just kind of helps right because it kind of takes the guesswork out of like what you should use because you have this nice shiny thing into the component library and you know when to use it and in that way it also enables quicker product development um, because it takes off some of that guesswork and some of the uh, it enables teams to make their own decisions because you don't really have to like lean on your designer so much. Um, you know what components could be used for uh, what type of feature. And so in that case, you kind of enable your team to make those decisions uh, on their own, uh, which is really awesome. And it's completely iterative, right? So let's say you don't have the right component, or maybe you need something to function a little bit differently than you once did, then you can iterate on that thing. And you can go back to the process of, you know, even if you want to start, start as early as the design phase and rethink it from there. And then again, just go through your steps and um, just ensure that everyone has a collective understanding of like this new thing, how we're building it, how we use it. And you know, you just can keep, you can keep doing this over and over as much as you need to. Another thing that uh, someone recently, Louise on my team uh, brought to my attention was uh, something that Tatiana Mack said. So Tatiana Mack is, really uh, influential in the accessibility community. She promotes inclusivity, accessibility, and ethical products. So design systems help highlight biases. So they help to kind of break down the barrier to decentralize who is creating things. And it helps to highlight like how and why have we made it 
in such a way. So let's say we are doing usability testing where we are getting some other sort of feedback and we realize that we've somehow managed to disregard the needs of a certain group, then we can talk about why we did that and, and begin these conversations to think about like, okay, well, how can we do better going forward? How can we be a little bit more inclusive um, how can we be a little bit more inclusive um, in the future to make sure that we don't run into this thing again? And so in that way, it just starts the pattern of thinking about ways to continuously uh, think about like, how can you make better products? And along the lines of being more inclusive, that kind of brings me to accessibility so what is accessibility? So accessibility focuses on how a person with a disability um, accesses or benefits from a site system or application. And so one thing we wanna think about is that, you know, people may not be able to use their eyes, ears or hands in the way that we do, right? And even us like sometimes like we may need special accommodations um now or later or whenever and then just thinking about the fact that uh many people do use a set assistive technologies to complete various tasks so why should we care and that's because uh, accessibility addresses discriminatory aspects related to equivalent user experiences for people with disabilities. So, you know, going back to one of the benefits of the of having a design system, you know, it kind of like brings to light some of the decisions we're making, and you know, it, accessibility helps us to thinking about things in an accessible way helps us to correct that. Uh, most people will need accommodations at some point in their life. That's something I just brought up. So you could be, uh, you could have a baby and need to use the keyboard. I mean, like right now I have my dog here because he um, has a bit of anxiety. And if he's not sitting in my lap, sometimes he will be uh, kind of goes crazy and starts barking. Um, so, you know, in that case, you may need to use the keyboard and so you're you need to always be thinking about like not in a othering way but like just also just empathy for all cases for all people and understanding that at some case you in some uh circumstances you know you just need to have an accessible product for everyone to have access to it and then another thing is that there are web standards through WCAG and your app may be subject to accessibility audits. And again, this is all a good thing because it enforces that we care about and think about accessibility. So WCAG is the Web Content Accessibility Guidelines uh, and it's part of a series of web accessibility guidelines uh, published by the Web Accessibility Initiative, uh, also called WAI, of the World Wide Web Consortium, which is also called W3. And this is an international standards organization 
for the internet. So for example, on my last project, we went through an accessibility audit and you know they just made sure that we were indeed following some of these guidelines. And it's just, if you are going to have a, there's certain requirements for certain types of businesses um, who have a web presence. Um, and so you may be subject to this audit. And in that case, you wanna make sure that you are designing for it upfront because sometimes having to circle back to correct these things, uh, you know, it, then you have to, you're up against time and effort and things of that nature. So it's better if you just go into it in the very beginning, thinking about these things. Accessibility is kind of under the umbrella of usability, right? So in order to make something usable, um, it should be accessible. And that's why the way I like us to think about it is good usability is just good accessibility. So, you know, think of your product, you want it to be very user-friendly, you want this to be something that people have access to, and that's just a way to think about it. Like, is my product really usable if I don't have the best accessibility? All right, so, uh, W3C, which I just mentioned, has some basic considerations to help you get started with making your user interface design and visual design more accessible for people with disabilities. I am going to, uh, so there's a lot here on this slide, but I'm going to separate it out. So how do you make designs, uh, you know, more accessible through visual affordances? Um, so we're going to take these top two. So the first one that is called out as a guideline is to provide sufficient contrast between foreground and background. Uh, there are several plugins available through both Figma and Sketch that I know of that aid in visual contrast. If you look there to your right, the image is from, it's actually a plugin called Contrast. And so what that does is you can select a component that you've designed in Figma and run it through contrast, the plugin, and it will let you know if it if you meet those uh, contrast ratio standards. And if you don't, then you know that you can go back and correct it. And there are also a plethora of web tools that will tell you whether or not you can you can plug in a hex code and it'll let you know um, if it is if it passes contrast ratio or not, but um, you know, so, but you can use a tool like this and you can identify within your designs what has sufficient contrast. So now these buttons that I'm using are from Andes, um, the design system that I showed you uh, the buttons of earlier. And as we can see, they actually don't pass contrast, uh, the contrast ratio. So, one thing that I want to remind us all is that even as designers, we do like to 
borrow or at least draw inspiration from other design kits and things that other designers have done. But we should also think about the fact that designers have different goals in mind. And so if we are going in with the goal of making the most accessible product possible, then we should also make sure that if we are indeed using an out-of-the-box kit or a, something from another source, that we are doing our due diligence to also uh, use tools such as this one to ensure that these components are meeting our expectations. So even as non-designers, if you have borrowed a component, you can use uh, there are very there are various like browser plugins that you can use as well as websites like what I just mentioned, where you can go in and plug in the, the color codes and make sure that they are indeed um, sufficient. There's also high contrast mode, which is super cool because you can go in and actually visually see what things look at uh, look like when put up against high contrast. So you can see how your designs perform or your website performs for itself. And you can be able, you would be able to make the needed changes. All right, so then the next guideline is don't use color alone to convey information. The reason being is that of course people may have some sort of uh, visual impairment, they may have color blindness. And so if you are using things like, let's say, you know, green or, you know, for a successful state or like red for failing, you know, there are people who may struggle with seeing those differences. And so in that case, you would want to pair that component uh, or that particular aspect of the design with something like an icon or symbols or text images or something that just gives an additional visual cue to your users. And I, the GIF that you see moving here is another type of plugin. It's called Stark. I think it's very popular. I love it. Um, and what this does is gives you the ability to uh, do visual simulations um, so that when you design and I'm, I'm taking those AD buttons and I'm looking at how they look with various, uh, was there various sorts of uh, vision types. All right, the next thing I'm going to talk about is improving accessibility by mapping out interaction. So this next slide here, I know it's going to be hard to make out, but this is just an example of a table that I did with uh, my team. And what I just want to show you is just like how much can go into annotating your designs for accessibility and just kind of like what that could potentially look like and all the things that you should be accounting for. And so I'm going to talk a little bit about what is included in this screenshot. So we have tab and focus order. So this outlines the visual flow of the page when a user is using a keyboard. And so when they are tabbing through, you actually want to, as a designer, as a developer, as a product owner, you want to dictate exactly what that visual flow 
looks like throughout the application. Um, you know, you just want to make sure that it, it makes sense. Sometimes tab order can be used to create a certain experience. So, for example, if you what if you want to uh, bring the user to a specific point, like if you're developing for e-commerce, for example, maybe you just want them to tap from the banner directly down to the products, you know, so and that way it can be used to kind of create an experience in itself, um, as well as again, improve accessibility images. We call out images because again, sometimes um, number one, people may heavily rely on those images, but then also if, for example, they cannot see the images, then we want to add something like alt text with for identification purposes, which a screen reader will pick up and read out to the user to let them know exactly what it is that they have tapped through. Then we have a landmark. So landmarks or regions, they're also called, identifies the area on a page to help with navigation for users that use screen readers. So what that may look like is something like, uh, you know, we highlight the banner and then we highlight the main content. And so that just helps to orient users who are using uh, things like uh, screen readers for assistive technologies. And then we have focus states. So focus states are very important. I touched on them a little bit earlier. Um, so not only does it inform the developers of what should happen when users interact with components, but users know what happens and, that, and they receive these visual cues that they are at the correct place and exactly where they want to be. So if they are hovering, for example, you're using your mouse, it's very nice to be able to receive some sort of visual affordance that you are indeed hovered over the button or the row or whatever it is that you are um, aiming for. Um, and that goes across uh, the area for different, for different states. And focus state is also something that accessibility audits pay attention to a lot. Again, just because it's one of those like really quick wins um, that's super easy and just improves the user experience so much. And then I want to show you a close example of what a screen reader annotation looks like. So let's say, you know, as a designer or developer, we want to piece apart various components and annotate them to uh, communicate a little bit better, like what our expectations are from an accessibility standpoint. So then going back to the example um, earlier that I showed you of the table that we've been working on, you see that we've highlighted, uh, I've highlighted the region and then tab order, which are the uh, little blue uh, squares uh, with the arrows um, that we've used to indicate when they're tabbing exactly what points should they hit. And then we have uh, the screen reader notes and it's probably impossible to read, but you know, that's just what we talked about on the previous slide. Um, those are some of the things that we're calling out in terms of, you know, 
what type of component is like the role that it plays the aria labels uh, what we expect the screen reader to say etc all right so then i want to talk about adding accessibility to your component library by just keeping general usability tips and patterns in mind All right, so it's drawing from those those guidelines, um, you want to ensure that form elements include clearly associated labels. So you want to make sure that you can actually see the label. And then you want to make sure that the labels are always um, in close proximity to what it is related to. And so that's just the way our, our brain works. Like uh, when we see things that are close together, then we like to group it. And so you want to use headings and spacings to uh, group related content. Then uh, you want to create designs for different viewport sizes. So I know for me, I like to, when I'm designing, I like to take like the largest Mac screen size um it's just it's just easier <laughs> for us sometimes but you also want to think about the fact that the user may not be using a screen that size and so if you you can start off with a large design but then also just make sure you are also accounting for okay well we have this table well what does it look like on a smaller screen we have less real estate we don't want to make it to where we lose context because now we've condensed the columns and we're losing some of the content and so if that does happen what happens do we truncate it do we add a scroll bar you know how do we make sure that this table is still usable and still accessible through various screen sizes. And with that, you want to consider responsiveness, right? So if the user is manipulating their window or just kind of calling out like, well, what happens on smaller screen sizes? Um, and then just setting that as a general pattern and that will be something that the development team will consider and we can start to code those things out, right? And then you want to consider uh, font sizing. So, uh, you know, a lot of us may struggle uh, with our vision. And so there are actually standards uh, through WCAG. There's certain standards as far as how small things can be, even when we think about things like touch targets. So touch targets are um, like what's the maximum width and height of the area where which if I hover over that thing, I can still have access to it. And so it's all about like, um, you know, again, just making sure that you are making things to where your users have to struggle to, to see it, to use it, to be able to hover over it and access it. So lastly, I just wanna leave us with a message about empathy, <laughs> which uh, should be embedded each time we approach the development or design of a new application because through empathy, we are able to put ourselves in other people's shoes and connect with how they may be feeling about their problem, circumstance, or a situation. And we can use that to create better products for everyone. So we can make things user friendly, we can ensure that everyone has access to it. And that's kind of, that's kind of the goal.
All right. So yeah, uh, feel free to keep in touch. So I can be found at Dana Black on LinkedIn. Um, I also have Twitter, the Black Designs, Black, as well as Black Design Solutions. And then you can just email me, DanaSBlack at gmail.com. Thank you for listening to the Women Who Code podcast. To find out more about our mission and the work we do across the tech industry, visit our website, womenwhocode.com. You can also follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Women Who Code. Be sure to check out our YouTube channel with hundreds of hours of free educational videos. Just go to youtube.com backslash women who code. Thanks again for listening and remember to subscribe, rate, and comment.